0: Hello and welcome to Eyes on Success, a weekly program covering a wide variety of topics of interest to people with vision loss. I'm Nancy Goodman Torpe. And I'm Pete Torpey.
1: There's honestly a lot of directions to go. Um, there's academia, there's industry, and then there's working for government agencies such as Fish and Wildlife, the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, etc. But I'm kind of open to possibilities. I think You know, you should reach far and wide rather than putting yourself in a box.
2: And of course, that advice applies to almost everything. But today we'll be talking about marine biology with our guest.
0: We'll speak with Maureen Hayden, who is approaching completion of her Ph.D. in marine biology, about how she got interested in the subject, how she does her research and how her results will impact the health of the planet. But first, for our tip of the week, this week's tip comes from Maureen Hayden.
1: My biggest piece of advice is that it takes a village of support to get where you want to go and just remember that, you know, people are there for you, but remember to say thank you because that goes a long way.
0: And that applies to any field, any endeavor, with or without any kind of disability or other challenge. Support for Eyes on Success is provided by APHConnectCenter.org Empowering people toward independence and success by providing blogs, information, and resources for individuals of all ages who are blind or visually impaired. Information and referral line are at 1-800-232-5463. You are listening to Eyes on Success. Success. Success.
1: Success. Success. Success.
0: Let's start by meeting Maureen.
1: Hi, my name is Maureen Hayden. I am a marine biologist. I am currently um, a PhD candidate at Texas A&M University, studying plastic pollution on Texas beaches. Uh, If you can't remember my name, I always tell people I'm Maureen, the marine biologist.
0: That's cute. How much longer do you think you have in your studies?
1: Um, A year to a year and a half. So I'm in my fifth year. And this summer, we're doing our last bit of field collection. So we'll have all of our samples collected by the end of August. And then, uh, then it's just processing samples and crunching numbers to figure out what our story says
0: and the minor detail of writing a dissertation.
1: Oh, yes, but that happens over a couple of months. But yes, that's just one minor, maybe, requirement for a doctorate.
0: And I gather you're visually impaired.
1: Yes. Um. So I was born with retinopathy of prematurity, so I was born blind. Um. And so, in short, I'm blind in my right eye, no light perception, and in my left eye. I guess clinically, I'm 2400, and glasses do not help me.
2: Do you use any assistive devices, either for doing your work on computers or reading material or navigating?
1: Yes, I do. I use a lot of assistive devices in my job, both uh, tech and analog, if you will. So I am a Mac user, and I really like the MacBooks because they come with VoiceOver and Zoom integrated. I use large text, text to speech. And I use voiceover occasionally as needed. And this also transitions over into iPhone, iPad, etc. One of the cool new tech pieces that I've gotten to use is I was granted a scholarship and I was able to afford some a alternate reality goggles. And then some of the, the analog technology I use include braille labels um, to distinguish, because a lot of what we work with is clear. So, you know, is it water? Is it ethanol? Uh, is it salt water those are very important things in our lab regular water versus salt water I also use a monocular a good old monocular has been my buddy ever since like kindergarten never go anywhere without one Um, and then I also use like my white cane for walking around Uh, in particular if it's raining or at night I have trouble uh, navigating or I'm going to be honest, if it's just crowded, um, navigating crowds can be kind of difficult. Um, so really the white cane, right, is that symbol. Like, I'm legally blind. If you're riding your bike around campus, I'm not going to move for you. <laughs> Please don't run me over.
2: <laughs> right. You know, I had about that vision as an undergraduate between 2200 and 2400 vision. And I really should have used a cane. I find these days, although I have no vision, I sometimes use a cane just to make other people aware of my situation and to not look so clumsy. And people do get out of your way if you have a cane.
0: It's very useful.
1: <laughs> yes, it is very useful.
0: Support for Eyes on Success is made possible in part by our corporate partners.
2: Find out more about partnership opportunities by sending an email to hosts at eyesonsuccess.net.
0: This week's focus topic is what a marine biologist does and how a person with a significant visual impairment can do it. So tell our listeners, what is marine biology?
1: Marine biology uh, is the study of the ocean and the animals that live within the ocean and around the ocean. So this not only includes the open sea, but it can include our coastlines. So sandy beaches, rocky intertidal zones. Uh, and it also extends into salt marshes and wetlands as well. So it's the study of the marine environment, so salt water and the animals that live within it.
2: And how did you develop your interest in this field?
1: Oh boy, that's a good question. Um, We'll say we went from the West Coast to the East Coast and then back to the West Coast and now I'm in the Gulf. So I've had exposure to all three ocean systems surrounding uh, the United States. First off, my mom and my dad both grew up around the ocean. Dad's from Florida, mom's from Maryland. And then my dad uh, went to the Naval Academy. So I grew up kind of with that nautical influence from my parents and their love of the ocean. But to one surprise, I grew up in the deserts of Tucson, Arizona. So how did a desert girl get interested in marine biology? And the answer is we were able to take a marine biology class as an elective um, during my junior year of high school. And I just loved it. Absolutely knew this is what I wanted to do. And then also that summer, my aunt got me an experience with Winter Dolphin at the Clearwater Marine Aquarium. For those who don't know, Winter is a rescue dolphin at the Clearwater Marine Aquarium in Florida, whose tail got caught in some fishing net. And it had to unfortunately um, be amputated to save her, but she swims with a prosthetic tail. So they will let uh, people go to the aquarium and you can do an encounter with winter dolphins. So, I mean, how cool is it to have an animal ambassador for disabilities meet with, you know, people and children and adults who are also overcoming barriers with disabilities and, you know, finding new ways of advocacy.
2: So you actually interacted with this animal.
1: I did. I got to make toys for winter and I got to feed her fish and they let me throw diving rings in the pool for her. It was really a great time.
0: So that sounds like a lot of fun, but right now you're involved in some serious research. What kind of activities does your research require of you?
1: I do get fun parts of my field work, and that's when we got out to the beach and do our our sand samples and our our water samples. Um, And right now we're just trying to figure out how much plastic is on Texas beaches because there's a surprising scarce amount of literature on the topic. And I didn't realize how bad the problem was myself until I moved here and started walking around and saw all the trash. And, you know, it's a shame that the don't mess with Texas mentality doesn't always make it to the coast, but that trash doesn't always come from the people. It comes from the water and the wind. And so I thought, hey, maybe I can use my degree to, to help with the plastics crisis. Um, and that's how this was born. And so right now, my job involves field work, which is the fun part, or the corner office, as we like to call it. Then we have processing samples in the lab, which includes looking for tiny critters that live in the sand. So little clams, little worms, little shrimps. And the ideas we want to see is the amount of plastic impacting the community members who live in the beach. But we know a lot about fish and turtles, but we don't know a lot about the things that the fish and the turtles eat, right? So we're trying to look one step below that. We have data analysis where once we get all those numbers back, we do data management and a lot of like computer coding. And then my other part as a grad student that a lot of people may not realize is A lot of graduate students do what's called a teaching assistantship, so I do research part-time during the week, and then I also teach uh, lab classes part-time as well for the university.
2: You know, it is great to hear the description of what you do from day to day. So many times young people ask, what is this field all about? You know, when I was young, I'd ask, well, what does a physicist do? And they can do all kinds of things. And it sounds like in your case, you're actually doing all kinds of things. And you get out on the beaches and the oceans to do some field work. You're in the lab working with your beakers and samples. And you also do some work in front of a computer. That's a great variety of experiences.
1: Oh, absolutely. It's uh, No day's the same. We'll put it that way. <laughs>
0: Do you need to do any adaptations in order to collect the field samples on the beach in light of your vision loss?
1: Um, For this particular project, no. Um, But in the past, for example, um, during my master's program, there was some scuba diving components because I worked with octopuses and we would go scuba diving to collect. We had a permit to collect octopuses. So I would have adaptations for scuba Um, And I drew my inspiration from Helen Keller, actually, and have my dive buddies sign their scuba signals in the palm of my hand, just as Helen Keller would have someone sign uh, in the palm of her hand. Uh, Because contrast for me underwater is kind of difficult.
2: Yeah, oh, that's clever, because I was thinking underwater people would communicate with hand signals, but if they do it from
0: afar, that doesn't work for you. Mm Mm-mm. How do you use the A-Sight digital glasses in your work?
1: What these do is it's like wearing two monoculars on your eyes, but they're teeny tiny little computer screens that are in these visors, and you have a remote on the outside that's connected, and I can wear these around the lab and magnify it to where I can see well enough and the the resolution is great in real time. So I'm able to keep better posture. It's better for safety. Um, for example, weighing out chemicals or pouring reagents, I can keep a safe distance from myself and in the work I'm doing, but still be able to see everything rather than like trying to crouch over a scale and having to get my face really close to like some ethanol or some acetone or something. Um, It just allows me to work a lot safer. And the thing I like about the a site glasses is they're not fully enclosed goggles like the Oculus gaming goggles you might see, but they actually have an open side on the bottom. So I can still kind of get that peripheral view of the lab. If I need to move around or walk around, I can kind of shift my focus.
0: That was quite an endorsement of the Ace Sight glasses. And if anybody listening to this show is interested in learning more, we did an entire program on the Ace Sight electronic eyewear about two years ago.
1: I find it really useful for my vision. But again, what may work for one person, uh, that accommodation may work great for some, or you might have to try something different.
2: And we talk about that a lot on this show. There are such a variety of tools out there today especially these days that you need to pick out the one that's right for you and be aware of what options are available Mm -hmm. what barriers did you have to overcome in your education were people generally supportive of you pursuing such a career and such activities did you come across any resistance or any people who particularly mentored you
1: I was really fortunate to go into college understanding the system and that as a college student, you are responsible for advocating for yourself. There are no more IEPs or 504s. Um, And my mom is a TVI, a teacher of the visually impaired. So I was very prepared and I specifically interviewed with all of the disability resource offices before I chose a university to attend for undergrad. That was something that was very important to me. So yes, I was very well supported even to where for my science classes, they had a microscope that would plug into a TV on a cart. And so it would project the image of what was on the microscope onto the television. And so that way I wouldn't have to be craning my neck um, like into a microscope. And not only did I appreciate it, but uh, my classmates were like, can we be Maureen's lab partner? (laughs) And then sometimes the teaching assistants would be like, can I use your microscope to show the class something? So, you know, sometimes adaptations that are things we use to overcome barriers wind up helping everyone.
2: How true. Yes. How about in terms of reading material? I would guess there's a fair amount of reading material in your field.
1: Oh, that's so true. And programs like Bookshare and Learning Ally were very important. Um, And when I went to undergrad from 2011 to 2015, the advent of PDFs for books was just kind of coming out, and the text to speech. Before that, I did a lot of audiobooks, very important for keeping up with reading. Uh, and then also, I would get large print versions of lab manuals or electronic copies of notes. Um, and then, another thing that my university provided was a peer note taker during my classes, so that um, in case I didn't get everything, I could get some assistance with making sure that I, I had adequate notes to study. Um, and then, of course, applying for needed accommodations on exams and tests.
2: When I was in graduate school, that's about the time I lost all of my vision and I wasn't able to take notes during classes. And so occasionally I would ask someone to take notes for me. And when I looked at those notes later on, I found them totally useless because I found that sometimes people were so focused on following what the professor was writing on the board that they really never got the content. And so I eventually learned to just do the reading ahead of time of where we were in the book or what we were going to learn about in the lecture and then just listen to the lectures to see what the professor thought was important to impart to us. And that seemed to work for me. But I guess, you know, everybody has their own methods. I'm wondering how you felt about that. Did you find those notes useful?
1: I kind of did the same approach you did. I would just listen and take periodic notes on my laptop of like things the professor said or emphasized um, and then use the note taker notes more as supplemental information. For example, if there were graphs or equations, that was very helpful. Um, And then one particular case for a organic chemistry lab I had a my own individual um, lab assistant because it would take me so long to weigh out powders, to measure liquids that I wasn't finishing the labs on time. And so the lab assistant wouldn't do the labs for me, but they would help me navigate some of those processes so I could stay on pace with the rest of the class, um, such as weighing out materials or you know, pouring liquids, et cetera. Um, cause we had to work under a fume hood the entire time. So you, you literally can't get your face close to things because of the vapors. Right. Um, yep, yep. so, so in that case, that was like very much appreciated. I think some of the students were a little jealous, but I was like, they're not doing the assignment for me. They're literally just an extra pair of hands.
0: <laughs> right. So now you're a teaching assistant and you work in the lab teaching to the, um, I don't know younger students, yes, um, how does that work? You know that's
1: I was really scared at first, um, like how's a blind girl gonna teach students um how wh- are they gonna I don't know, maybe try to take advantage or how am I gonna catch, like if they have their phones out in class or things like that? um, but I think the best policy is disclosure up front, so I always tell them about my low vision, and then I find that they ask more specific questions. So because I cannot read their text or their lab manuals straight away, instead of just saying, hey, Maureen, I'm really confused about salt marshes. They have to say, hey, Maureen, I'm on page 27 of the lab manual halfway down and I don't understand how you get anoxic sediment in salt marshes. And so their questions have to become more directed, more verbally detailed and so it actually causes them to have better communication skills.
2: It's interesting you gave several examples of how having a visual impairment can actually work to your advantage in terms of your listening skills during lectures, how you integrate material and I found much the same in you know science and mathematics, physics and stuff. You just had all that in your head and then The other example, just how you interact with people, when I was at Xerox, I led a group that was actually developing image processing algorithms and print quality specifications for our printers. And, of course, I couldn't see any of that, but my whole team had to learn to verbalize what they saw and how to actually communicate that with everybody. And it worked to our team's advantage, I think.
0: Well, in addition, um, as volunteers, we participated in a program through Xerox where we went to the local elementary schools and taught science lessons. And we would walk in day one and Pete would introduce himself and show his cane. And this means I can't see. So if you want to get my attention, you have to make noise. And by the end of the school year, I mean, the kids had just totally internalized the concept that there weren't any questions that he couldn't answer if they asked it well enough that he could get the whole question in audio without them pointing at something and saying, what's this? Yes,
1: absolutely.
0: So it takes a while to develop the confidence of the people you're teaching, but it sounds like You went into it a little bit uncertain yourself, and it took a little while to develop your confidence as a teacher.
1: Yes. Yeah.
2: And I guess these days teaching is a little bit different. Everybody used to write with chalk on a blackboard when I went to school. These days you can prepare your lecture ahead of time and put it all electronically onto slides that you can display to the class, right?
1: Yes, that's correct.
2: And how do you follow that information? Because you can't see what you're putting up on the screen. Do you just memorize your slides?
1: I do. And actually, that comes to my advantage um, because I don't use a lot of words, honestly. I just use a lot of pictures. I tailor my lectures so that my students have to be writing down. They can't be looking at the text. They have to listen to me and to write. Um, And same thing when I give public presentations, I don't use a lot of text. I make them more like a storyboard, so videos and pictures, and just memorize the flow because to me, If you can tell a story, that's going to stick more than if you just go from one topic to the next.
2: I think that makes for a much better presentation. I can't tell you how many presentations I've been to with other people or colleagues where the presenter has so much text on the screen that people are so busy reading the text, they're not listening to what the person is saying. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: I had a mentor who always said, if the computer's dead, you should be able to give the same talk as if you had the PowerPoint.
2: Good point. So now that you're almost through with your PhD, what are your eventual goals? What would you like to do when you're done?
1: Um, I definitely want to continue striving for for change in the, the plastics and, and climate change and marine biology movement. The field is so new. There's honestly a lot of directions to go. Um, there's academia, there's industry, and then there's working for government agencies such as Fish and Wildlife, the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, etc. To tell you the truth, I'm going to apply far and wide. I could do a postdoc with the government, I could do a postdoc with a university, but I'm kind of open to possibilities. I'm more interested in the research topic and making sure that it's something I'm passionate about. I think. You know, you should reach far and wide rather than putting yourself in a box.
2: Well, and certainly if you find something you enjoy doing with people you enjoy doing it with, and it's almost not like work.
1: Oh, and it has to have a field work component. I have to get outside. That's a must.
2: Well, that sounds like a lot of fun. And we wish you a lot of luck with uh, getting the job that, that suits you and that you find enjoyable when
0: you're done.
1: Who knows? I may even get to travel the world one day.
0: <laughs> well there are oceans in every direction
1: that's so true
0: you are listening to Eyes on success. success 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 now for this week's final item how to learn more about marine biology and how to contact maureen hayden
2: well maureen it sounds like you've had a Fascinating time learning about marine biology and going through your education with very few problems. You've been very well prepared and uh, ready for any challenges that came along. Do do you have any places you'd point people to where they can learn more about marine biology or some of the resources you found useful?
1: Yeah, when it comes to marine biology for women specifically, um, there's like the women... Of Oceanography Association, I can't remember their name exactly, but I'll I'll give it to y'all to put in the show notes. When it comes to marine biology, the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration is a good resource. Additionally, I would recommend checking out Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute, uh, Scripps Marine Lab, or if you really want to get involved, a lot of local aquariums and zoos have volunteer positions. Uh, where you can help take care of the animals or be a docent and talk to people who come and visit the aquariums and zoos. And that's a really fun way to get involved, Um, volunteering at your local zoo or aquarium. I know people who do that and they have a blast.
0: Well, and that's a great way to get introduced, not just to the field, but even as a volunteer to get introduced to the working world, what it's like having a manager who's telling you what to do and how you do those interactions. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, if people had questions for you, how would they reach you?
1: You can reach me in a couple of ways. Um, you can find me at Maureen, the marine biologist, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. On Twitter, it's Maureen underscore Maureen, M A R I N E. If you look up Maureen, the marine biologist, it should it should come up. Um, additionally, you can reach me at my email, which is. Maureen dot Hayden at T A M U for Texas A N M University dot Edu.
0: Can you spell your name?
1: M as in Mary, A as in Apple, U as an umbrella, R as in red, E as an echo, E as an Echo, N as in Nancy. My last name is Hayden. H as in Howdy. A as in Apple, Y as in Yellow, D as in Delta, E as in Echo, and N as in Nancy.
2: And I assume you have a LinkedIn page. I do have a LinkedIn page, yes.
0: And I actually Googled you and I found you have a research project page at Texas A&M, which lists, among other things, an awful lot of awards. So you must have been doing pretty well all the way through school.
1: I think it's important to always take every opportunity, and I'm a really big fan. If you are legally blind or low vision, apply for scholarships and get connected with student organizations. So there's National Federation of the Blind, American Council of the Blind, American Foundation for the Blind, Council for Citizens with Low Vision International, and then don't forget to check out your state's local resources including local chapters and vocational rehabilitation for resources and support. Oh, and then I'm also a mentor with Envision's college success program. So we mentor undergraduates in many programs for free. That's a nationwide program. Uh, I'm one of the mentors and you can sign up for free as an undergraduate and meet with a mentor uh, per your recommendations. And um, we work on everything from academics to social life to Life skills, we talk about cooking, and everyone in the blind world is a big fan of air fryers, not going to lie, because you just put it in, you touch a button, and you'll walk away. It's the best.
2: (laughs) 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 And, of course, you can find all of that contact information in the show notes associated with this episode at
0: www.eyesonsuccess.net. That's it for show number 2231. Next week on Eyes on Success, we'll be talking with a blind stand-up comedian. We have long considered adding a section to our show called Vitreous Humor, but we couldn't think of enough jokes. Well, Todd Blankhorn regularly does an entire routine of stand-up comedy with large sections relating to blindness, and he's actually funny and having a lot of success. So we hope you'll join us next week for that show. You've been listening to Eyes on Success, hosted and produced by Nancy Goodman Torpy and Peter Torpy. You can access the full archive of previous
2: shows, subscribe to the podcast, and much more by going to our website, www.eyesonsuccess.net.